All right. So today we are in Job chapter 4, and we're going to fly through chapter 4 through 7 today, 4 through 7. Um, so I'm going to jump around to a few other places in Scripture, but when I do and I want you to see it, it's going to be on the screen for you, so you don't have to turn there. You can stay here in these chapters, chapter 4 through 7. So we'll read from the Word, and then I'll put up on the screen uh, things that come from other places. So I know we finished up Revelation, and now we've been in Genesis in the first couple chapters, um, and so it's kind of a weird jump uh, to jump to Job, but uh, that's what I'm teaching through right now. And so uh, it's been a while. I think it, March 8th was the last time that I preached. So I'm going to do a little recap to catch us up and give us a frame of where we were and some of the things we've already talked about, just to remind you of those things. Um, so Job is full of valuable lessons that help us in many areas of life. Uh, many try to narrow it down to one or two main themes. Um, and some of the most popular themes is that Job teaches us God's sovereignty. It shows us God's sovereignty. It's true. That is a very true statement. Job shows us a lot about how sovereign our God is. It teaches us about suffering. People want to say the book of Job is all about suffering to help you understand suffering in this life and in this world, uh, particularly Christian suffering. Um, some say that the book of Job answers the question why we suffer which actually, if you read it, it never answers the question why. So that's actually a, a misconception. God doesn't tell Job why. We know why because we are given a glimpse into what's going on in heaven, the meetings that God is having with his angels and whenever he talks to Satan and gives him authority. So we actually get that insight from the book. Job never had it. And even though we have all that insight, it only tells us what happened. It still doesn't tell us why it happened, except maybe to tell us about God's sovereignty, right? It teaches us about the heavenly places, and, and that's the term I prefer to use. I know uh, uh, Kaysen talks about dimensions a lot of times, um, and I know it's really popular for people to talk about realms and things like that, but um, I want to point you to this verse here in Ephesians. Uh, this is a very popular verse. I'm sure you, many have heard it. Um, Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so that's his term, and so that's the term I like to use. But that's what he's referring to, is these heavenly places. And I think television and, and you know over the years, different literature and stuff gives us the impression that heaven is a location way outside of our galaxy, way out in space, and you have to have the ability to zip there and back. And the Bible doesn't really describe heaven that way. Kaysen, over the last couple of weeks, has talked about how there's three different uses of heaven. Paul talks about the third heaven. So heavens is used for the sky, right? The birds fill the heavens, right? And then there's the heavens beyond the sky, which is outer space is what we would call that. And then there's the heavenly places. It's where God exists. And so the Bible, not particularly in Job, but the Bible in general, as you look at it, um, there's a few places where heaven isn't described as far off. It's just a heavenly place that we can't perceive. Um, and so that's kind of the confusing part of it. Uh, there's a, a story in 2 Kings where the king of Aram is against the king of Israel. And so what he tries to do is kind of sneak in on some territory outside the city and come in and start taking these small cities outside of Jerusalem and Samaria without them knowing so that he can slowly creep in on Israel and take control of it. So he sends armies to these different cities outside. And then Elisha is the prophet at the time. So God tells Elisha, go tell the king what's going on. Tells the king. And the king sends guards there to guard the territory so that they can't move in. So the king of Aram, the Arameans, he thinks, I've got a spy. I've got someone in my ranks who's, you know, going against me. Who is it? You know, and he tells his, his counsel to find out who is it that's telling our enemy what we're doing. And they immediately say, no one in our camp would do this. There's a prophet in Israel. And he makes a statement. He knows what goes on in your bedroom. It's a way of saying, like, there's no secrets hidden from this God of the Israelites and if he tells the prophet what you say, he's going to know what you say. 
And so that's what it is. So he, the king says, well, go get him. Go get Elisha. Let's, let's put an end to him. So he sends a small army up to get Elisha. And so they surround where Elisha is. I don't remember where it is exactly. But he's inside. Elisha is inside. And so one of his servants who sees the army comes running in and says, we're surrounded. And Elisha tells him, no, they're surrounded. We're protected by an army. And the servant is shocked. He's like, what are you talking about? And so Elisha prays that God would open his eyes, right? Open his eyes. And what he sees on the hills all around him are these heavenly chariots of fire surrounding not only them, but the enemy as well. And they're far outnumbered. And so prophets, you know, in the Old Testament are often called seers, seers, being able to see. God gives them this ability to see and understand heavenly places. Whereas, and you know, you can get into whether it happened at the fall, you know, because of the fall, we lost the ability to see heavenly places or what. I don't know about that. Maybe Kaysen will get into that in chapter three. Um, But you and I know from history and experience, we can't see heavenly places, but God at times gives certain individuals the ability. And there's another, another scene that's really cool in the New Testament um, whenever Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The word it says is that heaven is ripped open. That's the term. It's ripped open or torn open. Whatever God did at that point, he tore where everybody who was there and could see, could see the heavenly places, just a glimpse of it, as the Holy Spirit descended on him and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So heaven isn't really that distant place. It's another dimension (laughs) that we can't see, right? It's the heavenly places. And so uh, Job has given us a glimpse into those heavenly places and how they operate and what goes on. Um, And so one of those things, Uh, that it reveals to us in that, is Satan. It talks to us about Satan. It reveals our enemy, Satan, and how he operates. Okay, this is a true statement. It reveals him to us. It shows us that he had to show up with all the other angels and present himself to God. He's subject to God. He has to do what God says. He has to show up whenever he's supposed to show up. Um, Some other people say the book of Job is a book of wisdom like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. All these statements that you can kind of take, it's written in poetic language. You can just pop them out, and that's a lesson for life. And we're going to talk a little bit today about how that's actually dangerous to do that with the book of Job because it's full of earthly wisdom. And we have to learn to unpack that. And so one of the things for me that I think about the book of Job is it teaches us how to read the Bible. It shows us how to read the Bible and really pick it apart um, to make sure we're understanding it clearly without jumping the gun. Um, So those are all different versions that are all true, but I don't want to narrow it down because I think the Job, the book of Job is just full of stuff for us. So I want to try to unpack everything I can as we go along. There are some false beliefs about what Job is about. I heard a a podcast this week where someone suggested that the book of Job is a warning to Christians about living for works-based favor from God or works-based salvation, that Job actually... Um, whenever he lamented, uh, was upset that he was blameless and upright. As the book tells us in the beginning, we're going to go over that. He says he was blameless and upright. He lived right. So he felt he deserved all the good that he had. So he was angry with God when he lost it. And no, (laughs) this is the point completely. Uh, It's a false teaching. Uh, Don't fall into that. It's, It's not that. It's so much more than that. Uh, Another one is uh, a belief in positive confessions. Many people in the prosperity gospel realm want to say that because there's a line where Job says that the thing I feared most has come upon me, that because he walked in that fear, that's why it happened. God did it because he had fear about it would happen. No, that's that's totally off base. Um, And then there's a a verse that's very commonly used. We talked about it in, in my first sermon on this. Uh, I've got it here for you on the screen. So it says, you will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. And we talked about how we live in a one verse Christian culture in America that does this. And oftentimes it's like this. You see it on social media, you just put it up. There's no reference for it at all. So you see this and it's a powerful authoritative type claim 
So for all you know, you think Jesus said this to his disciples. And if he said it to his disciples, then he's saying it to me, right? You may think God declared this to one of the kings in the Old Testament. You, you have no idea without the reference. So here's the reference. And sometimes that doesn't help you either if you don't study your Bible. Anybody know what's going on in Job 22? You know, most of us wouldn't if we saw this on social media, right? Job 22, 28. Okay, yeah, Job is wise, so maybe Job said it, and this is a wise statement. So that's why it's so important to really study your Bible and get a broad glimpse of the whole, because what you realize as you get into this, we're going to look at Eliphaz today, one of the terrible friends of Job. And this is Eliphaz in his, one of his later comments making this claim to Job that if he will just repent of his sin, then this will happen for him. He will declare a thing and it will be established for him. And light will shine on his ways. Like that's his earthly wisdom. That's not God's earthly wisdom. This is not a promise to us. And this is not true for us to claim. But there's whole theologies and whole churches based around the idea that you can claim something And because God spoke creation into existence and you were created in his image, you can speak things into existence the way he can. And that's inspiring. You know, it gives you chills and it makes you excited, but it's absolutely false. Um, Encouragement is not a sign of truth. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about how um, sincerity is not mutually exclusive to validity. They, They don't, they're not absolutely exclusive. So let's go through a quick recap of the first three chapters. So in chapter one and two, uh, we establish that Job is blameless and upright. This does not mean he's sinless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it describes it as he feared God and shunned evil. That's how it's described. Now, it's not just the author that says that. It's not just people. God says it twice in the first two chapters. God says this about Job. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. Okay? So that's important. Uh, Not sinless, but a God-fearing man of integrity. That's what we establish about Job. Uh, We establish that Satan is subject to God absolutely. He is far more powerful than us, but is nothing compared to God. Okay, so I want to show you this illustration real fast. I think this is a common... I see this sometimes. In fact, we have a, a movie for our kids where it teaches some Bible lessons, and there's this illustration where you see this battle of good and evil. And we're used to that because that's in literature and that's in movies throughout time. The battle of good and evil, and they're on an equal plane, battling that out. And in God terms, we think of ourselves as kind of stuck in the middle. There's Satan and all his evil angels fighting God and all his good angels, and we're trapped in the middle some way. This is very common. This is a common view of how we see God and his interaction with Satan and with us. But this isn't a very good one. So let's go to the next one. Here we establish that God is above, right? We're, we're not on equal plane. We know God is more powerful. He definitely has the upper hand on Satan. And those who are lost, they're subject to Satan. In fact, Jesus describes lost people as children of the devil, right? But whenever you're saved, you become a Christian. Now you have authority over Satan. This is a common teaching, actually, among a lot of people, that you have authority over Satan to command him. The Bible doesn't teach that. And so this also, while it does put God at the top at least, this still isn't really how the Bible demonstrates it. And so this next one, all all images fail at some point. This This isn't a perfect picture. But this is more what we get from Job and from the Bible as a whole. This is a decent illustration, I would think. Okay, God is far above, far greater. There is no one compared to him. You know, part of being called holy, um, there's kind of this misunderstanding. Holy does mean perfect in the sense that being perfect makes you different from everyone else because no one is perfect except God. But holy doesn't mean perfect specifically. It means set apart. It means unique. It means different. So whenever in Revelation we see the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, saying things three times gives it a lot of strength. God is separate. He is unique. He is set far above everyone and everything else. That's what we see throughout 
Job, and through the rest of the Bible. He's set apart. Satan, we see in Job, whenever God gives him clearance, he's able to control storms. I mean, how did he kill Job's children? The house fell whenever a great wind knocked the four corners of the home down. That's what Satan's capable of. Some people, again, will say we're capable of controlling storms. There's no reality in that at all. But Satan's able to do these kinds of things. He's, he's described in the Bible as a cherubim. So there are kind of these ranks of angels in the Bible. Cherubim is high. I don't know if it's the highest, but it's high. So he's this powerful angel. Um, in terms of wisdom, his wisdom is earthly and demonic, but it is great wisdom. If you think about, you know, Genesis doesn't describe when the angels are created. We know he was there in the garden and that he tricked Eve and Adam and Eve sinned at the fall. So we know he was there. We know he has dominion on the earth, right? We see that in Job. God asks, where have you been? On the earth, roaming to and fro. He has dominion there. When he uh, tempts Jesus in the desert, Jesus doesn't challenge his authority whenever he says, bow to me and I'll give you all that you can see, all this land. So we see Satan definitely has this authority and this dominion over the earth, right? Some kind of authority and control and free will to move about it, right? We see that in Satan, um, both in Job and throughout the Bible. So um, in terms of experience, he's been watching mankind, our failings, how we operate, what gets us, what entices us, what pulls us this way or that way, how we fight with one another, the wars that have gone out through it. He's seen it all. So in terms of just life experience wisdom, he's got a lot, okay? So his earthly wisdom far exceeds any earthly wisdom of any man who at best lives to be 100, and by that time you're usually pretty feeble, right? Um, Satan is described as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not described as weak, okay? So anyways, we see Satan's above man, right? And then man's below that. But the reason I put those things is just as borders, as barriers. God is in control of all things, and he sets barriers. So we don't have authority over Satan, but Satan, Jesus has authority over him. And if we are his, then we call upon Jesus for his help, and Jesus will either keep the barrier there or remove it. He doesn't have to answer your prayer, right? When he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, uh, keep us from temptation, right? That's a prayer we can pray and should pray, but it doesn't mean it'll always happen, right? Because God wants us to resist the devil. And he says, if we do that, he'll flee from us. So, but there are these borders, these barriers. God is in control. And that's what we see here in Job very clearly. Satan can go this far and no further. Okay, so that's what we... That's what that visual is about. In chapter one and two, we see Job's profound wisdom. So I just want to reiterate what he says whenever all this comes upon him. So Job is upright and blameless. Um, He's a God-fearing man who shuns evil. Uh, But there's a meeting that goes on in heaven. And God points out Job to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, he only loves you because of what you give him. Because he's got all that stuff. Because it talks about him being this wealthy man, the greatest in Edom, right? He probably has authority. Um, He only loves you because of what you give him. Let me take his stuff away, and then he'll curse you to your face. So this is kind of Satan's challenge to God. And God only presents this in order to prove himself. Why would God, you know, put Job, you know, in the line of fire if he didn't know what was going to happen? God obviously knows what's going to happen. He's all-knowing, right? Uh, So... Satan says, you know, let me, let me add him. And God says, okay, but not him. You can't hurt him. You can hurt anything else. And so in one fell swoop, I mean, he takes all of his livestock, all, of, all but four servants, however many servants he would have had, I would assume hundreds, uh, all but four servants, just the ones lived in order to tell him what happened, lost all of his livestock, all of his children, all of his homes, all of his property and crops were burned up. And in a moment, (laughs) all at the same time, like in the same day. And then we don't know how much time goes by before the next meeting, whenever God and Satan are together again. And he says, look, my servant Job, he still loves me. Um, And so what we see is that first one. And so at the end of the first attack, 
Uh, it says, then Job arose, tore his robe. So he's sorrow. That's the, the sign of mourning in Jewish culture. He tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. We see this first incredible profound statement after that. Then some time passes. Satan has to present himself again before God. God points out, look, Job still loves me, worships me, fears me. And Satan says, well, it's because you didn't let me attack him, only his stuff. If you let me attack him, then he's going to curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, you have his body, but spare his life. You can't kill him, which I don't know why Satan would want to do that. How could Job curse God if he's dead? So then he inflicts something, and we kind of talked about this a little bit. We don't know all the details of what it was. We know there were boils, and then throughout the book, Job describes some other symptoms like sleeplessness and loss of appetite. Uh, He's super thin. We know that when the friends showed up in chapter 3, they didn't recognize him. Couldn't even recognize their friend that they'd known. He's in such bad shape. Okay, So we don't know the extent of everything that happened in Job's body, but we do know Satan's goal is to get Job to curse God. So we know it's going to be the worst of the worst. Um, And so when that happens, again, we see uh, Job in chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? This incredible statement in the face of all that he's he's faced and, and seen. So after this, we moved into chapter 3, and this is Job's lament. Chapter 3 is Job. uh, So his friends had shown up. They had met at some point, decided among themselves, these three friends, okay? And that's where we're going to get in today, but it's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have decided we're going to go. And it says that they started off right, that they planned to go and comfort him. But they show up, and he's in the ash heap. So in those days, the dump was basically a burn pile for all the whatever was waste that they couldn't use, didn't want, was a burn pile. So he's basically sitting in the dump, which it would, it would be a fairly sanitary place because it's constantly an ash heap. They're burning. Um, so it's sanitary, but it's the dump. He's outside the city sitting in the dump, and it says he scrapes his boils with a piece of broken pottery. Um, and so that's where his friends come. And they start off right because they sit down and they don't say anything <laughs> for a week. And they're just there. And they, they mourn with him. It says that they tear their robes and they put ashes on their heads. You know, So they're showing this respectful kind of mourning for their friend. Um, so in Job's lament, he wishes he was never born. He pleads with God to take his life. What's important is that he's not suicidal in the fact that he's not planning to take his own life or threatening to do so. Um, and even in his anguish, he submits to God that Job's life is not his own to take, but life itself is in the hands of God according to his will and timing. And so we still kind of see that picture here that even though Job is in utter torment, sorrow, and anguish, and wishes he was never born, and wishes for his life to end, he still submits to God's authority over his life, that he's not going to take it himself. He pleads with God to take it. And so it's this heavy, heavy thing, um, this lament for his life. And at the end of the chapter, Job's friends arrive. Um, they start off well. They plan. It says that they plan to comfort and mourn with him. They sat for a week without speaking, which leads us to where we are now in chapter 4, where they turn from their great start and ruin it by behaving as some of the worst friends in history. Um, Keep in mind, the goal of Satan right here is to get Job to curse God to his face. So we, we will see how that plays out in this chapter. So all that to say, let's get started here in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? So he starts off gentle. Job, can I, can I please say something here? 
can you handle it if if I have something to say? Um, it sounds really gentle, except that before the verse is even done, <laughs> he says, but who can withhold himself from speaking? So he's not really asking. It seems like he's starting off gentle, but he's like, I'm going to say something, like it or not. Um, so he's off to a rough start. Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? So verse 3 through 6, if you remember Job chapter 1, verse 3, it said that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Um, So what this means is not only his wealth, but typically if someone has that kind of wealth, they have authority. They they may serve as a king or as a judge um, or some kind of advisory leader in Edom. So most likely he would have given wise counsel to many people in the past or ruled over debates or uh, disagreements between people. Um, So what you see here in verse 3 through 6 is Eliphaz is essentially making the cutting statement Shouldn't you know better? If you're the one who's been judge presiding over these people when they face calamity, shouldn't you know what's going on? You know, haven't you been the wise one? Now it happens to you and you despair. You know, he's making this cutting statement. Verse seven, remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright ever cut off? So here's an important point that we need to stop and talk about. This is the main argument of the three friends for like 20 chapters or so. So as we go through, I mean, today we're already covering four chapters. We're going to keep covering lots of chapters because essentially what you're getting is this debate. They're saying, if you've done wrong, if you've done wickedly, then you get punished, period. So what you do is you repent. When you repent and you live righteously, God shows you that favor that you once had. That's their whole argument, okay? But we're going to get into some of the language. We're going to go through it. We're not going to skip it. Uh, But just to let you know, this is the main argument. It's going to get old, (laughs) so we'll speed up as we go along um, until we get to the end of their debate and we hear from a young guy named Elihu, and then we'll, we'll focus on what God has to say at the end of the book. Definitely. We'll spend more time there. All right, so that's verse 7. That's their... Their main argument, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright ever cut off? And then verse eight, even as I have seen, we'll stop there. This is the foundation of their argument. This is their proof text, so to speak. Even as I have seen, it's the source of his argument. It's ultimately why he and the other, other friends will be wrong in the end because they base too much of their wisdom on their own life experience. Now, we didn't go back over it, but we talked about this before. At the end of the book, in the very last chapter, God calls the friends out, and he says, you were wrong. Job was right. And so we're, we're basing off what we know at the end of this book, that the friends are ultimately wrong, okay? And here's why. Even as I have seen, that's the problem. Our experiences definitely inform us. They give us information. Our experiences can help us, but we don't base our theology on our experiences. We base what we believe about God, everything that we believe about reality, upon his revelation in his book, in the Bible. Um, But he's basing this off of his life experience. So verse 8, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger They are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So here we get, so today we're kind of talking about the anatomy of a lie, right? That's kind of what I'm covering, the anatomy of lie, how it's it's built, okay? Um, So the main argument is narrow. It's way too narrow. You don't take into account all of the, the revelation of God that's in the Bible. You just focus on one little thing. You base things on your personal experience, things you can't 
no one can really refute if they weren't there, right? Um, and then lies are filled with truth, okay? So there's a statement in here where he talks about the roaring of the lion, verse 10, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken, okay? Uh, I want to show you here in Psalm, in Psalms, chapter 3, verse 7, we have the psalmist saying, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. So that's the comparison. Eliphaz is saying the wicked are the ones that God destroys and breaks them down. You're broken down. You've done something wicked. So it's that same kind of analogy. Breaks the teeth of the wicked, breaks the teeth of the lion. And in Psalm 58, 58, 6, speaking of the wicked. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. So there's truth to the statement. It is true. And we see it, you know, at a very basic level. For example, like uh, it can be formulaic. So uh, if you're a student and you go to school, you know, how many students have prayed about passing finals, right, over the years? God, help me pass the final. Help me pass the final. But they spent all semester skipping class and not doing the assignments and not reading the textbook and not studying. Like, we get reaping what you sow in very plain ways like that, right? And that's just kind of a funny example. But we do see this statement, you know, you reap what you sow. We see that in, in life in many ways. Uh, but the problem with applying it here to Job and his is that we're looking at clearly a divine destruction, a divine uh, adversity that we're looking at. And when we do that, we need to kind of stop and pay attention and think and pray and study and wait on the Lord because this isn't that clear, cut, and dry. And we don't always know what's going on in the life of somebody else. And so that's, the problem is not the true statement. These are true statements. Many of these statements are true, and you can look to them in Scripture and find them. <clears throat> but what we need to recognize is that we do not all have the same experiences. Um, God does not deal with every person according to one formula, right? And this is the problem with boiling things down. Um, so uh, I used to work for Wiseman House Chocolates, and so we would make syrups or we would make caramels or that kind of thing. So if you put sugar in water and you boil it down for a long time, what you get is great syrup or toffee or something like that. But you know what you don't get anymore? Water. There's no water in there anymore. You boiled it all out. And our bodies need water. They don't need sugar. Okay, right? Um, my brother used to work at a really nice restaurant. And so if you went, you could order a bouillon like with your, with your meal. And they had different ratings at different prices. So they had a 12-hour, a 24-hour, and a 36-hour bouillon that you could order. And the 36 was really expensive. Well, what a bouillon gets you is a great flavor, right? Because what you do is you put bones, usually from animals, maybe some scraps and a few vegetables, and you boil it and boil it and boil it down for a long time. What you get is a great taste, great flavor in your mouth. But you know what you don't get? Meat. There's no meat in there, right? And when you boil down God's word to make it really tasty and palatable for us, you lose the meat. You lose the water of life sometimes. And so we can't do that. And that's, that's another reason that his friends fail so poorly here. And the way we can fail too if we do the same thing. Um, so don't boil down God's word uh, in order to make it palatable. All right, so verse 12 now. <clears throat> now a word was secretly brought to me. So here we're, we're taking a little turn. Eliphaz is, is now using something to build on his point, and it's a spiritual experience. Um, and there's, there's some problems here. So now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Look at his emotions here. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, 
but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he, God, puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. <clears throat> so we see here kind of that picture. There's some truth here, right? Of seeing how the angels are more powerful than us, above us, you know, in many ways wiser than us. And he points that out. If he charges them without error, how much more those who are, like, we are created from dust. I don't know what angels were created from, but we were created from dust. So there's that truth sprinkled in here. Here's a problem. I, I have lots of experience with this in the few years of people coming and telling me I have a word for you from the Lord. I have a word for you. And I have a lot of problems with that, and we should. This, this, is, called, this is evidence, falsely called proof, for the argument. So this is another anatomy uh, of a lie, is that you offer evidence, call it proof, for your argument. And the thing is, it's irrefutable because there's no way that anyone can verify it, right? What can I do? I, there's no way I can tell you you're wrong. There's nothing I can say against you. What do I do? I can't say it wasn't real or it was all in your head or what you heard from whatever this experience was, was true statements because I don't know what this thing was that you heard. How do I know if what it was saying is true? I can say nothing against this. It's that I've got a word for you appeal. And when the person is sincere, and especially when they express emotions, it gives you the impression that it's true, right? So that's why I pointed out in here. Look at the emotions he's pointing out. So when someone comes to you, they're tearful. They're telling you about some experience that you have that you can't verify. It does feel like I have to accept it. I have to accept this thing, but we don't. We have a whole lot from God here that we have to test. And the thing is, if you don't know your word, and so this is why I always go back to at the end of all of these, study your word, get in your word, study the Bible, get on top of it. Because the less you know, whenever you face something like that, it's a whole lot more time and work <laughs> to figure out where the flaw is. Whereas if you already know this very well, as soon as you hear what's coming that's false, you know, oh, that didn't line up. It doesn't line up because you already know this. So you want to be prepared. This prepares you for those things. If you're not, you have to just, you know, be gracious, be thankful. Thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate you. I'm just going to mull over it for a while, think about it, consider it, pray about it. Um, thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, I'll get back to you. And you got to spend the time because what do you do with it if you don't know the word? Right? So that's another, just offering something that you can't refute, you can't see, they can't prove to you, you can't prove them wrong. This is a really good way to tell a lie <laughs> um, because you, you feel hopeless unless you know the word of God. It also hurts when they're really vague. That happens a lot too in those kind of circles where people do that. It's really, really vague, especially timeline. It's like, this could happen tomorrow or 45 years from now. So you just have to wait to see if it comes true. It's like, oh gosh, please stop it. Um, uh, so anyways, that's what that is. Um, moving on, chapter five. Uh, so verses one through seven, we see more of the main argument that the wicked get adversity, and the good receive favor from God. Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. 
verse 4 right here. I just want to stop for a second. This is probably the most harsh statement of the whole thing. You remember in chapter 1 what happened in the first calamity against Job? All of his children were killed. So in verse 3, he says, I've seen the foolish take root. So he's calling Job a fool. And because you're a fool, your children died. I can't imagine just how hurtful that would be. That's just what an awful friend. And we're going to see Job respond to his awful friends soon. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, we're in verse 5, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Here, again, I, this is a true statement. We, we talk about, you know, in our theology, in our doctrine, the, the sin of man. That when Adam and Eve sinned, that sin has passed on generationally. All have sinned and fallen short. We have a sin nature. This is pointing to that sin nature. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Um, more truth, uh, but misguided, for sure. Uh, it's that formula. Laziness equals poverty. Haste equals injury. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Mentality is what that is. Verse 8 through 27 here. Now here, we see some of the most true and inspiring statements from Eliphaz's speech here. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Anybody disagree with that? Of course not. God does marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. This sounds like the Psalms. It sounds like the psalmist. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. That passage in Isaiah that Jesus quotes whenever he's in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. He says, the, Lord has, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, uh, to set the captives free, you know, that, that passage. That's what we see here. It's true. This is what God does. Um, so yeah, that's 8 through 27. That, um, truths about God and it's encouraging motivational speech. But again, a boiled down approach to the reality of Job's trial. And so it's not trustworthy. Um, Continuing on, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. There's a passage in Hebrews. uh, I don't have it up for you on the screen. But it talks about God uh, chastises or disciplines the one he loves. Right? That's in the book of Hebrews. God disciplines those he loves. He corrects those he loves. It's a true statement. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. That's a common Hebrew poetry tool. Let's talk about six, even seven. Uh, You see it in Proverbs a lot. In famine, he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to a grave at a full age, as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. This is that strong statement. If I'm going to lie to you, I need to tell you it's true, <laughs> right, in order to convince you. Um, there was a, uh, a guy who used to tell the story of whenever he got saved and the Sunday when he got baptized, 
you know, afterwards, a man, an elder of the church came up to him and shook his hand and said, now all your problems are over, right? And that's kind of what we see in some of this. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. All good things are going to come to you now that you're following Christ. You have to ignore Jesus' teaching in the New Testament to think that. (laughs) Um, He promises the opposite. The world will hate you because of me. (laughs) That's what Jesus tells us. Here we are, chapter 6. This is Job's response. So Eliphaz is done with his first speech, thankfully. Um, Job is going to respond here. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. Imagine, you know, wet sand. All of the wet sand in the ocean weighed on a scale. Job is saying, if you could only understand how much anguish and sorrow I'm in, it would outweigh that. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. Um, this is, you know, this is a lament and, and this is sorrowful, but one thing that I admire, at least in this statement, that's not there, but you can see it in between the lines, is that Job still gives credit to God. Like, he's still submissive to him. He's the one who's in control. He's pointing out God's sovereignty even in the midst of this. Um, I just love that. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavor, flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. So we talked about this in, in, my first, in the first part. Now, this is a description that some people use to try to diagnose what Job was dealing with, his boils, his sickness, that he lost his appetite. But, and this is just my view, um, this to me seems a statement about his friend, about his friend's statements, that your words are empty, right? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Basically, what you're saying is not true. You're just, these are empty words. They, they're not nourishing me. You're not helping me. You're just speaking at me. It's more, it's more like poetic language for him describing Eliphaz than it is describing his physical condition. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would lose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. There's some of that uh, false view that Job carries, is that if I'm dead, then I'm comforted and I'm at peace. Uh, But we don't, our life isn't over at death. Our spirit goes on. Um, And if we don't have Christ, you're definitely not at peace. Uh, Verse 11, what strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me and is success driven from me? Uh, Here in verse 14 through 21, Job describes his friends. So here he's going to talk about what his friends are like. First, how they should be, and then he gives a poetic picture of what they're actually like. To him who is afflicted, so Job in this instance, Kindness should be shown by his friends. So that's what friends ought to do, he says, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. So Job recognizes some of his thinking is flawed. He said earlier that my words are rash, right? He's lamenting. So even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty, his friends should still show show kindness. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say, bring something to me, 
or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the oppressors. So going back to verse 19, Tima and Sheba were known nomadic tribes, people who traveled all the time. So what he's describing here is when it rains in the mountains, it forms these rivers, these streams, these brooks. But when it gets hot in the desert, it's dry. So you see the stream coming down from where you are. You think you're going to find water, but when it's hot, it's not there. You travel through the desert expecting to find water in a place that you've been before, and it's not. that's what you are to me as friends. I expect you to come and show me kindness, but instead you offer me nothing except pain and sorrow. You're making it worse. Um, it doesn't say specifically, but you know, Eliphaz's you know, secret dream, his vision that he talked about, I really think it was a spiritual thing. I don't think it was in his head. I think it was Satan because we know Satan's goal here is to get Job to curse God. And I think he's using these friends here now to continue to press and to say these hurtful things and to press hard against him so that he'll do that. That's what I think. It doesn't say that. Uh, people go back and forth on that, but that's just, that's how I see it here. Uh, teach me. So we're in verse 24, chapter 6, verse 24. Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. Amen. That's true. How strong are right words? But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede, my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? So here he's pointing out, you, you have no proof. You're saying I'm wicked. You're saying I've done something wrong. Show me, please. Show me where I'm sinful. Show me where God is punishing me for my wickedness. Show me. You can't. You can't do that. Um, notice uh, back in verse 22, 23, he says, he didn't even ask them to come. He didn't ask them for anything. He didn't call on them to come to him. They just showed up on their own. And Job points out that the argument lacks substance. It's just a bunch of empty statements without proof. And so he says, you seem certain. Please show me the actual proof of your claims. Can you do that? And of course they can't. Moving on to chapter 7, verse 1. Is there not a time of hard service for, a, for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages. So I have been allotted months of futility and wearisome nights that have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? And the night be ended, <clears throat> for I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Um, so here we, we see these are some physical descriptions of what he's going through. Restlessness, can't sleep at night. Um, this is awful in verse five, but his flesh is caked with worms and dust and it cracks and breaks out. Um, more of that description of what he's actually going through. But Job compares his trial to the hard labor of a hired worker. The worker looks forward to nighttime when he can rest and the end of the work week when he receives his wages. Only to Job, the difference is he can't see when the end of his anguish will come. He's losing hope. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Verse 7, Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. This is him alluding back to Eliphaz, no doubt, about his vision of the night 
You scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. So here he is telling his friends, get out of here. You are no help to me at all. Unfortunately, they are not. They're going to stick around and make it worse. And again, I think this is God, or Satan, how he uses people sometimes to try to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish, which is, again, to get Job to curse God. Uh, in verse 17, we take a very important turn here. Okay, This is another very important theme. This isn't related to the anatomy of a lie, but this is important to the book of Job. Notice who Job is speaking to now. You'll notice as we move through this book that Job is the only one who speaks to God. The others merely speak of God. So here in 17, Job now is no longer speaking to Eliphaz or his friends. He's speaking directly to God. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? Sounds familiar? There's a very famous passage in Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him, that David writes? And they're one of the lyrics of one of the songs that we sing today. It says the same thing. Who am I, O worthy one? that you would give your only son. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? This is kind of like uh, when you're working hard or running or something, like if you played sports in school or something. Let me catch my breath, right? It's that kind of statement, just a different culture till I swallow my saliva, till I can catch my breath. I can't even catch up here, God. There's too much calamity. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? This may be why people think that the book answers this question why, because Job asks it and God speaks to Job later. But you'll notice the, answer, the question isn't answered. So he is asking why. But God's not going to tell him. Uh, why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. So here we are at the end of Job's lament as he addresses God. I want to jump back real quick and point out a couple things where we can kind of see an image of Christ, Okay. Uh, as I talk about, it's so important for you to study your Bible. As you do that, something you always want to look for is Christ in, in all passages. And so I want to go back here, Job 6, okay? Job chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. He says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose my hand and cut me off. Let's look at that in comparison to Isaiah 53, verse 10 and verse 8. Okay, so Job here in chapter 6, he says, It would please God to crush me, that he would loose, my, loose his hand and cut me off. Okay, so we're looking at those statements here. Uh, Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So that word in Hebrew, bruise, um, it's the same as in uh, we're going to see in Genesis soon at the fall. God gives the first glimpse of the coming Messiah, uh, talking about the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake, that you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. That word can be crush or destroy. Okay, so here we see that statement. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. So Isaiah, we, uh, if you're not familiar, one of the, probably the greatest prophet. Um, he is quoted so much in the New Testament, but so much of his writings were describing the Messiah. So this passage here in 53, this is describing the coming Messiah. This is describing Christ. It pleased the Lord, God, Yahweh, to crush him, bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He was taken so this is verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. 
And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. So here's that statement. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So we see these statements here. Now this is Job without hope. This is Job in total torment and anguish, asking God to crush him and to cut him off from the land of the living. Because his view is, I'll be comforted in the afterlife, which isn't necessarily a correct view. Um, But we have hope in Christ, and that the Lord was pleased to crush our Messiah on our behalf as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, He was cut off from the land of the living. Um, There's, I don't think there's much argument against it, but Jesus died actually died, was actually killed on the cross. Um, That really happened. And so we have this hope in Christ because God was pleased to crush him for our sins and our iniquities. He has taken them upon himself. We have this hope in Christ that our sins are forgiven and that we will find peace after this life in the presence and goodness of God because of him, because of that sacrifice. And then I want to compare a contrasting statement here in Job chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Job 7, 9 and 10. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Here's the statement of death without hope. Christ, our hope, went down to the grave and did not stay, right? He says he goes down to the grave and does not come up. Christ rose from the grave, amen? And that's our hope. Um, That's the reason we have hope. It's because Christ is who he said he is. He proved it in lots of ways, but the most powerful is that he rose from death. Uh, He did not remain in the grave. And so Job says he shall not return to his house. We know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is seated at his right hand, interceding on our behalf. We have this great hope in Christ, that hope that Job clearly didn't have in this lament. All right, so as always, um, what do we do with this? (laughs) This can't just be head knowledge to know these things. There's things we ought to do with what we pull out of Scripture. So today, hold fast to the everlasting truth contained in the Scriptures, Consider the things that are said, not only the words of others, you know, in this, I've got a word for you kind of appeal, not only their words, but the ones you choose to use. I've noticed there are a lot of Christians, and I've noticed it in myself over the years. I don't really consider the words that I use sometimes. And so I have to stop sometimes, and what does that mean? (laughs) There are so many phrases and things that are empty, you know, they have empty meaning, until you really think about it and unpack it. Um, So consider your words as well, not just the words of others, but really consider them. What does that mean? Um, So many arguments that, you know, just plague our world, you know, people that get bickering, even at the highest levels of, you know, the courts and the House and the Senate and, you know, uh, the UN. It's just a disagreement of terms, really. If they would just talk about the words they're using and what they mean when they use the word, then the argument wouldn't have to happen. It's because we have a misunderstanding of the words we're actually using, the terms we're actually using. So consider your words, really consider your words, and always test them against the truth of Scripture. Our experiences in life, they provide us with information, important things to consider. But remember that those experiences that you have in your life are not what you base your theology or what you believe about God in reality. That's not what we base that on. We don't base it on those things. We base it, again, on the Word of God. And as always, study God's Word continually and don't be content with a boiled-down version of it. I did chapters 4 through 7 in whatever amount of time this is. That's boiled down. Don't, Don't settle and say, I'm good for another week. Get in, study, and we only did this one book. There's 66 books here. We need to know what they are. So don't ever settle for a boiled-down version or for good enough. Often when I say 
good enough. It's not. Um, so don't say good enough. Um, always, always be hungry for more because God's word is speaks to us through his spirit still today. And there's so much here for us. So, all right, let's pray. And uh, we'll jump back in with chapter eight next week.